Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. This episode of The Sheridan Tapes was made possible by our supporters on Patreon. Anna of Amsterdam, Skylar Wheatland, Lucy Mason, and Martin Ray. If you'd like to support the show as well, please go to patreon.com slash homesteadcorner. For as little as $1 a month, you get early access to ad-free versions of episodes, a special weekly behind-the-scenes podcast, and patron-only AMA livestreams. Before we get started, this episode contains unreality, discussions of illness, death, and grief, paranoia, and dread. Content warnings and a full transcript are available in the show notes. You hear about Skylab 3? They're ready for crude missions again. Glad they didn't let one failure set them back completely, huh? Lucky they had the option. I never thought you were such a quitter. You saw the same things I did in that lab. You really just gonna leave it there? You really just gonna let it stand? More coffee? Please. Anything for you, sir? Just coffee, thank you. Well, you called me here with some grand notion of a plan. Care to tell me what it is? How can you just sit there knowing what you do? And what exactly do I know? Don't pretend like you've already forgotten. Like you're still sleeping sound at night. (sighs) Edgar, listen to me. Did you see anything unusual when you walked in here? What do you mean? Exactly my point. If you'd been paying attention, then you would have seen the bagman sitting in the corner booth when you came in here. No, don't. Don't turn around. Jesus, Edgar. You knew this place was being watched? Then why did you want to meet here? I didn't. I already know what you're going to say, and I already know what my answer will be. You to need anything else? We're we're fine, thank you. And, uh, you, sir. I said... We're all set here, thank you. Well, if you're so keen to speak for me, what am I going to say? Could be any number of things, but they'd all boil down to me staying and helping you go against orders. And that's not going to happen. They've shut us down, Edgar... That's the end of it. All right. All right. 
I think you've done enough talking. I have never seen anything like what happened in that lab. This messed me up. I can't sleep. I, I, I can't eat. I can't stop thinking about who we lost. I need to find a way to, to make it right. I, I have to stay here. I, I need to make sure this never happens again. And if that means continuing the research, well, I'm Keep it down, Edgar. You're getting worked up. I damn sure hope I am. The fact that you're not is what's wrong with this situation. I'm moving on, Edgar. I suggest you do the same. Find a post somewhere quiet. Leave the army if you have to, but forget this ever happened. Not just for your safety. Think of your family, your friends. Hell, think about the ones who didn't make it if you have to, but don't let this eat you up. Please. Besides, that door will open again someday. I'm sure of that. And I don't think either of us want to be here when it does. Where could you possibly go after what you've seen? Iowa. You take care of yourself, Edgar. there this is justin bartha i made a funny new podcast king of the egg cream it has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like lewis black i'm torn by my feelings for two women bobby cannavale you can eat it or if someone hits you you can put it on your cut melanie linsky i wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet jason ritter i can break things and pick locks and kill people michael stuhlbarg the whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better ari grainer no don't whet its appetite what are you an idiot me justin bartha that's not just any egg cream that's a lemke's special and all narrated by the hilarious richard kind this is the story of harry dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Check. One, two, one, two, three, and you're still working. Wonderful. You hungry, Maria? You really were serious about cooking lunch for us, weren't you? Nothing like making lunchtime an occasion on your day off, right? I guess. If you're actually working, that is. Does hiding from the cops count as a job? <gasps> Wait, you're a cop! Oh, God, our cover is blown! Ha uh-huh. <laughs> ha. What are you making over there? 
Oh, this? <laughs> it's one of my special recipes. Well, only recipes. <laughs> <laughs> Rob's the cook, not me. Well, would you look at that? White rice, huh? <gasps> I'll have you know there's some perfectly good broccoli and chicken thighs roasting in the oven, Miss Maria Sol. Oh, that explains the smell. How much garlic did you use? I plead the fifth. <laughs> oh, the bitter irony. So, you're still planning to go back to work, huh? Some of us still have bills to pay, Maria. Really? That's what you're going with? Look, I can't just leave the department, okay? Why not? Rob quit and nothing happened. Why can't you do the same? Please tell me you've at least given it some thought. <sighs> I, I have. It, it's not a simple decision. It is if it puts other people at risk. If it puts your friends at risk. Okay, okay. You've made your point. Listen, Bill. You can't let Morrison get away with this just because you think you can change his mind. I know I can't. Anna might be gone, but I'm not letting anyone else get hurt. Anna's definitely alive, but you really should listen to her, Bill. Kate, you know better than anyone why I can't... Hey, uh, I'm not getting into this again. I'm just here to back Maria up. I've already made my feelings about this abundantly clear. <sighs> Don't remind me. Just look around, Bill. We're all here because we need to hide from the people you're working with. And you're still siding with them? I'm not siding with anyone. Then what the hell are you doing, Lieutenant? Oh, are we, uh, is this a bad time? Sam, please try to talk some sense into Bill. Nothing we say is getting through. Stop trying to rope him into this. He was a cop, too. He gets what I'm saying. I wouldn't say I, uh, th that I really... Get it? Oh, for fuck's sake. You go through the trouble of cooking everyone a nice lunch. And oh, so now he's it's upset. Time. A man finally criticized him. Of hey, course he... that's enough, all right? Bill, I... I think you and I need to talk about this. Now. God. You're all acting like I'm some kind of idiot. <laughs> of course I know how serious this is. I just... I just need a little more time. Morrison is coming around. I, I know he is. We can figure this out. Whatever. You two go ahead and try to work this out. I'm going to go out back and listen to some of Anna's tapes. Look, I... I know you think there's a way to change the department for the better, but trust me. The more time you spend there, the more you'll just start seeing things from Morrison's point of view. And if you're never really on his side, he's going to figure out eventually. I mean, you're already in danger working with us. It's only a matter of time before Morrison or DeWitt figure it out. I know, then... all right? But I know how Morrison runs surveillance. Better than anyone. He's not 
going to figure it out. Fine, fine. Okay, you're right. But even if you do keep him in the dark, you can't get him to stop his experiments without telling him you followed DeWitt. And if we can't do that, then nothing else matters. I'm dead. Morrison's won. And if anything goes even slightly wrong when he does it, he could rip a hole in the universe and let things that would scare the Echo loose. Doesn't that mean anything to you? Everything all right in here? Bill's going back to work. Excuse me? They need me there. I, I'm the only one keeping Morris in this <laughs> This conversation is going in circles. She, she's right, Bill. You're just turning every reason you should leave into an excuse to stay. Can't you see that? What's that supposed to mean? Bill, look. I know how hard it is to get out of that life once you're in it. Believe me. I know. But the more you try to convince yourself that you can actually do all- Can all just shut up for a second? You haven't been there for the last six months, Sam. And none of you even know Morrison. I do. I, I got him to back down from hurting someone just this week. And he admitted that the department needs to change. He's trying to be better. To make all of, of, of us better. And if I just stay for a little bit longer, I know I can convince him of the danger he's in. When did just talking to people stop being an option for you? Gee, maybe sometime around when I last talked to Morrison and he decided to have me killed. Look, Bill, Morrison's right at the top of the food chain. He doesn't have to listen to anyone, least of all, you. And we all need to work together if we're going to have a chance of stopping him. This is hard for everyone, but you're the only one who's still not on board with this. Could you all just... Everyone, shut up. What's wrong? I found something on this tape. I must have missed it before. There were about ten minutes of silence at the start, so I assumed it was blank. But it was really just... Do we really have to do this now? Bill, please. I think you all need to hear this. (sighs) Fine. Roll it. I dreamt about dad again last night. I know, I know. It's totally normal to dream about your dead loved ones. But I never dream about dad. Not since he passed. And I definitely don't do it three nights in a row. I barely ever remember my dreams. I've started keeping this recorder next to my bed so I can keep some kind of journal. But Most of the time, I end up just falling back asleep. The ones I can remember are usually about some kind of entity chasing me. Or me chasing them. Or just me falling out of the sky. I've had that one more than a time or two. But these dreams are different. Or at least they feel different. Last night, 
I was sitting on the tire swing that used to hang from the oak tree in our backyard, being pushed back and forth by my dad. I was three years old again and wearing denim blue overalls and a yellow shirt, the one with the little bow just below the neck. I giggled as he pushed me higher and higher. My dad called out for me to hold on, Anna, as he pushed, and I clung tighter to the rope, excited and terrified. I could feel the hot summer sun beating down on our backs, and it just felt perfect, full of joy and love as the two of us shared that moment. There was no fear in that dream, just the feeling that I was safe and loved unconditionally. And then I woke up with a sense of dread settling into the pit of my stomach. The debate about the nature and meaning of dreams is probably as old as consciousness itself. People have seen them as prophecies of the future, ill omens, glimpses into the spirit world, or even curses sent by demons or witches. Normally, I might be quicker to dismiss those ideas, but even now, nobody's completely sure why we dream. We know how we dream. It's our brain trying to interpret random electrical impulses during REM sleep, pulling thoughts, emotions, and imagery from our memories to construct the dreamscape. But the reason why this happens, why we evolved the ability to dream, is still a mystery. Some scientists think it's meaningless, something left over by evolution that doesn't benefit or harm our chances of survival. Freud thought that dreams offered a window into the subconscious, revealing hidden desires and emotions. And others theorize that dreams evolved as a coping mechanism, a way for our brains to process and heal from anxiety, loss, and trauma. Personally, I've never given it much thought. My dreams have never meant much to me, and I'm more interested in finding ghosts when I'm awake and chasing them down in my sleep. But now, I'm left with no idea of why my subconscious is choosing this moment to focus on Dad. Am I trying to rebuild that missing bond somehow? Is it my father trying to reach through the veil and tell me something? Is it a trap set by some power with influence over dreams? A trick? I don't like to admit it, but I really don't think about Dad very often. I guess you could say I'm not fond of dwelling on my past. As close as we were, there are a lot of painful memories tied up around him. A psychiatrist might go so far as to say I'm avoiding a place of unresolved grief, which is why I avoid licensed psychiatrists as a rule but I've been forced to give him a lot more thought lately. To reconcile the good with the bad. The things I was there for. And the moments I missed. The words I couldn't say.
So if my dad is somehow trying to tell me something, which I'm not saying he is, what is it? Those who knew Andrew Sheridan always said he was a quiet man, a man of few words, much to my mother's contempt. My father was what you might call a, a solitary man. He wasn't a hermit or a recluse or anything like that. He couldn't be, not with his job. It's just that, for the most part, he really just preferred to be on his own. My mother would drag him around to block parties and church functions and family engagements, and he'd play whatever part he was supposed to dutifully. But at the end of the day, he was more at ease tooling around in the garage or garden, or else reading on the back patio with a camel cigarette tucked under his lip. Maybe it was his upbringing that made him want to be alone. He was raised mostly by his father, Thomas, a farmhand from West Des Moines. His mother, Patricia, passed away when he was 11 from what he always suspected to be an autoimmune disease, though she was never diagnosed. He didn't talk about her much, but when he did, his voice would grow soft as he talked about her world-famous zucchini bread and the way she used to read him short stories by the fireplace of their little ranch house on Patsy Lane. After Patricia died, my grandfather began to spend more and more time in the field, putting in long hours and longer days that left my dad to his own devices. And this is where we see just how far the apple fell from the tree. Instead of getting into trouble, my father spent that time studying and reading physics textbooks. His mother wanted him to get into a good college and escape the cycle of poverty she and Thomas had inherited. And so he did. He excelled, in fact. Enough that his test scores for mathematics and his scientific ability landed him a full-ride scholarship to MIT. He graduated summa cum laude with a major in physics and a minor in astronomy, and would have gone on to earn his PhD if he wasn't approached by a government agency to work on some top-secret R&D project. I'm guessing it was the Department of Defense, but... Dad never said. But whoever he worked for, they moved him out to the Nevadan desert right away, where he spent six years working on a project that's still top secret, as far as I can tell. Despite my repeated attempts to find more information, there seems to be no official record of Andrew Sheridan ever working for the government. Of course, I could have asked him more details, but he almost never talked about his time in Nevada. I had to scrape together what little I do know over years of careful prying and seemingly innocent questions. All I really know about his work is that it was classified and cutting edge, though he would always say that makes it sound more interesting than it was. Maybe that was true, but that doesn't explain why he chose to move back to Iowa after the project ended and spend the next 20 years of his life teaching physics to board high school students. Nor does it explain why he chose to marry Deborah Fielding soon after he started teaching. A somewhat more questionable decision, if you ask me. I'm kidding, of course. 
sort of. I mean, my parents, they got along, mostly. It just always seemed like there was something missing between them. Maybe it's the fact that they only exchanged about 12 words a day, most of those coming from my mother. Or maybe that they didn't seem to have any common interests outside of raising Kate and I. Dad definitely preferred the company of classic novels and tobacco to Mom's weekly programming of ladies' bunko nights and gin rickies in front of the TV. If there was a spark, it was faint. But he always made sure to buy her flowers on her birthday and their anniversary. Even after she doubled her nightly gin intake. I loved my dad, despite his faults. And I do miss him, though it pains me to admit it. He was pretty much the only person in my family I could relate to, even if we were fundamentally different. I think he saw more of himself in me than he ever wanted to admit. Sometimes, when I was little, I would sneak out back and climb into his lap while he was reading and just stare up at the sky, trying to count the stars. He would take occasional breaks from his book and point out the constellations for me, always just with the name, leaving me to figure their stories out myself. Those are some of my earliest memories and some of my happiest. I guess it's no surprise that I returned to one of those nights in my dreams then. I was seven years old, or thereabout. My mother had just poured herself a cocktail and vanished further into the house. As soon as I saw her leave the kitchen, I slipped my jacket on over my gray flannel pajamas and crept out the back door. My dad was already on the porch, reading a collection of poetry. Elliot, or maybe Yates. I can't remember the cover. I asked him to read me some, and he did. But in the dream, his voice is muffled, like he's speaking from somewhere far away. After he finished the stanza, I asked him, Daddy, do you believe in ghosts? He looked down at me and smiled. It was a thin, weak smile, but his eyes sparkled with kindness. Slowly, he picked me up out of his lap, stood, and pointed towards something behind me at the corner of the house. His mouth was moving, but he wasn't making a sound. I looked to see where he was pointing but all I could make out in the dark of the early evening was a vague, shadowy figure drifting at the edge of my perception. I wasn't scared, and neither was he. But there was something else there, something that didn't belong in that moment. And that's where the dream ended. My actual memory of that night isn't a whole lot clearer. Most of my childhood memories are pretty jumbled, sometimes contradictory. But what I do remember is this. 
I asked him if he believed in ghosts. He looked down at me for a long moment, like he was considering how to answer that question. And then he said no. I was disappointed, but then he added, but that's never stopped the ghosts. This was about as close as he ever came to admitting an interest in the supernatural. He always denied it, even when I found an EMF scanner hidden in an old set of drawers during one of our summer garage sales in a box labeled Oslo, Nevada Department of Justice. He reluctantly let me keep it, and I've been using it ever since. But even with all that denial, I could tell that the supernatural fascinated him. It would sneak through in the way he'd react to Gothic poetry and in the voices he'd use when he read a Christmas carol to Kate and I, using the twinkling lights and shadows to full effect. I know my dad had a part of himself that he thought he had to hide, and I have a feeling that's why I felt so close to him, despite our differences. And then, there's the dream I had three nights ago, the one that started me thinking about him and the one that disturbs me the most. It isn't a memory, I know that much. I'm standing out in the desert, watching my dad as he shovels dry sand into a set of molded plastic buckets. He's working frantically, trying to build a sandcastle as quickly as possible. But without any water, the walls just crumble away to nothing. I want to help, but I can't get any closer. When I try to move, I can feel my legs sinking deeper and deeper into the sand, like something's pulling me down. I struggle watching my dad's movements grow jerky and disjointed until I slip below the ground and lose sight of him completely. That's all that happened in the dream. But now I can remember something else. In all three dreams, I saw that shadowy figure. It wasn't just waiting for me in the darkened corner of my childhood home. It was there in the desert, in the mirages dancing and shimmering behind my dad. It was there when my dad pushed me back and forth on the tire swing, only visible in the moments when I looked back at my father and saw it over his shoulder, watching us. If this is some kind of warning from beyond the grave, which wouldn't be the strangest thing that's happened to me, I'll admit, then it might put some other things in perspective. The last time I drove through Nevada, I found a letter pinned under the windshield wiper of my van. It had no name or address on it, I have no way of knowing if it was actually meant for me or if it was some kind of ill-conceived joke. But the message inside, printed in a nondescript sans-serif font, was this. The sins of the father are to be laid upon the children. I burned the letter the first chance I got. 
I think I'm being watched. I don't know who's doing it or why, but I can feel it everywhere I go. People who seem just a little too interested in what I'm doing, asking too many questions about where I'm going next. Strangers in cafes and restaurants who look away from me just as I glance up. It's gotten to the point that I can barely stand to be in the city anymore. It feels like every security camera and cell phone is pointed at me, following me. I thought this might happen at some point, that I'd cross the wrong person or power and have to pay the piper. But the fact that it seems to be connected to Dad's work in Nevada is something I never expected. Something I wasn't prepared for. There's so much he didn't tell me. And now, whatever or whoever he worked for is coming after me. And with the questions Ren and I have been asking lately, it's... Well... I don't know, but it's getting serious. I need to go back to Nevada, back to Oslo. Maybe not now, but soon. I've been chasing rumors of an abandoned underground military base a few miles outside of town. I've tried looking for official records, and I've even torn through a few papers Dad left behind, but there's nothing and the maps of that area are just a confusing jumble of service roads and minor geological formations, all profoundly unhelpful. I can't help but suspect that might be by design. I want to talk to Maria, but I'm not ready to tell her about all this. I'm still worried this might just be paranoia, and I don't want to lose her because of it. But... Maria, if you're somehow listening to this, then I'm sorry, because that means I'm dead and I never got the chance to tell you the truth. And for that, I'm sorry. Sorry beyond words. I hope I can figure this out. I hope I can tell you everything someday. And I hope we're still together at the end of it. We still have so many stories to tell. This? This is what it's been about this whole time? Maria, how... How much of that was news to you? Almost all of it. <sighs> Anna called me out to Oslo soon after she left Agate Shore. She was desperate. She'd have to be if she was asking for my help. We spent a few days in Oslo, looking into supernatural occurrences and haunted places. Honestly... I kind of felt like she was trying to avoid something else the whole time. And then, on the last night, we drove out into the desert. We spent hours just circling around, looking for something. I tried to ask her what it was, but she swore up and down that she couldn't tell me. And 
I kept getting more and more angry at her. We finally stopped somewhere, in the middle of nowhere, really. She wanted me to go out with her, but she still refused to tell me what we were walking into. She said it was better if I didn't know, like it would protect me from what was about to happen somehow. I started yelling at her. I said I wouldn't help her unless she told me the truth. I told her if she didn't tell me, then she could deal with whatever it was out there on her own for all I cared. I wandered off, just walked off into the desert at random, furious at her. By the time I cooled off and realized what I'd done, I must have been half a mile away. And then I heard a gunshot from the direction of the van. I ran back, but the area around the van was empty. Then I saw a hatch in the ground sitting open a few yards away. I ran over to it and was about to call down when I heard laughter from down below. It was tense, rough, but definitely human. I heard static and a loud beep from some kind of radio. And then I heard someone say, this is Greyhound, all clear. I didn't go down there. I didn't need to look to know that Anna was dead, so I ran. I, I took her van and fled back to Oslo, dumping it on the side of the road and, and wiping it down to make sure the police couldn't find my fingerprints. I hitchhiked back to the motel and left the next morning without checking out. I couldn't risk anyone knowing I'd been in Oslo when she vanished. Now, I guess you know. I hoped. I wanted to believe she was still out there. I wanted you to believe it too, for a while. But this tape confirms it. She was being watched, being hunted. And whoever it was killed her when she got too close to the truth. No, she... she can't be... It, it can't be that simple. It can't be. You're sure he called himself Greyhound? Yes. Uh, are, are, are you sure? I've heard it in my dreams every night since then, Sam. That's what he called himself. Wait, what does that mean? It means... that... Morrison killed Anna. That... He knew from the start. What? He's been in Oslo for decades. He used to work for the government on some secret project nobody's willing to talk about. And then he settled down here. He joined the Oslo PD, climbed the ranks until he became chief. And he has always used Greyhound as his call sign. Oh my god. All this time. And he's been carrying a, what, some kind of decades-long grudge about Anna's father? The sins of the father to be laid upon the children? That had to be him, right? He knew all this time, and he's just been using the investigation as a way to, to, to cover his tracks? To misdirect us while Bill, he... I, I think you need to calm down. What? 
I, I'm not allowed to pace now? Everyone, please stop arguing. Kate, are you alright? Oh, I... Yeah, uh-huh. Do you need to lie down for a bit? The guest rooms... Yeah, I'm gonna go lay down. See you all later. Oh, God. Kate... So this is how it goes, huh? Bill? He can just kill whoever he likes. Just like that. And then he just lies about it to the entire department. Controls the investigation. Make sure, make sure nobody learns the truth. How many times has he done this? How, how many people has he killed? Tyler, I really hope you're not thinking of doing something stupid here. How is this stupid? We've got this tape, we've got Maria's testimony, and mine. The facility is right there. If we take this to the press, What you have is a recording of a dead fiction writer nobody's going to believe. A grieving video editor who claims to have heard Morrison's voice and the full confession that you trespassed on government property. You got nothing. So I'm just supposed to, to what, ignore this? Look, Bill. This is way above any of our pay grades. Maybe if you get away from the force for a year or two, you'll understand the kind of game you've been playing. But you can't fix this. You need to drop it. Now. Morrison will bury all of us if you give him half a chance. I'm guessing Anna understood that better than anyone. That's why she didn't tell Maria the truth. So she wanted to try to stop him. I've got to go. I'll see you all later. Bill, please tell me you're not going to go see Morris. Of course not. I need to go home to Rob. I've, I've been away too long. I'll be back sometime. I, uh, I don't know. I'm sorry, Maria. Sam. Tell Kate. I'm sorry too for everything. The Sheridan Tapes, Episode 47, The Aspen Trembles. Starring Aaron Neely Chaconis as Anna Sheridan, Amitola Lomas as Maria Soule, Jesse Steele as Bill Tyler, Trevor Van Winkle as Sam Bailey, Virginia Spots as Kate Sheridan, Maurice Cooper as Jerry Price, Mike Kennedy as Edgar Morrison, Clayton Curry as Andrew Sheridan, and Fennec Foxfire as The Waitress, with original music by Jesse Hogan. Written by Virginia Spots and Aaron Neely Chaconis, and produced by Trevor Van Winkle and Virginia Spots, and made possible by our supporters at patreon.com slash homesteadcorner and at co 
ko-fi.com slash homesteadcorner. Visit thesheridantapes.com to view additional content, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and connect with us on Twitter at Sheridantapes and on Instagram at the Sheridan Tapes. I'm Trevor Van Winkle, this is Homestead on the Corner, and you're listening to The Sheridan Tapes. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.